This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Once Upon a Crime. I'm kicking off this season with a new series that might be a little different than you've heard here before. But not to worry. There will be crime as well as the usual twists and turns in these unusual cases. Each one of the episodes in this series will feature animals. I'm an animal lover, so you don't have to be worried that I'll be detailing cruelty towards animals. That would be too disturbing for me and for my animal-loving listeners. No, these stories have connections to animals, but they, of course, are not the criminals. As you might have discovered in following true crime, mankind is the most dangerous animal of all. So it is the criminal behavior of the humans in these cases that create situations where animals end up as part of the story. I'll first take you to one location where two separate incidents took place, similar in nature, but years apart in time. By looking at these two cases, it becomes clear that when the reckless behavior of humans mixes with the natural instincts of wild animals, it can set off a deadly series of events. Join me for Chapter 1 of Wild Things, the San Francisco Zoo Tiger Attacks. Humans have long been fascinated with animals that are found in the wild. We've found ways to observe and study them. Some may get the chance to observe animals in their natural habitat, perhaps by taking an expensive safari or by visiting a safari park where animals can be viewed in natural settings from the relative safety and comfort of a vehicle. But most will only see animals in captivity, in zoos or aquariums, for example. Not everyone agrees that animals should be kept in captivity, and in recent years, some facilities have tried to create more humane and natural environments for these animals, with varying degrees of success. But it's the big and dangerous animals that seem to hold the most fascination for people. The big cats, lions and tigers, are about the most popular animals at any zoo. Except for the monkey cage, of course. Those crazy monkeys. Maybe it's the beauty of these animals, or the power they possess. They can even seem somehow otherworldly in their power. If you've ever heard a lion roar while you were at the zoo, you might know what I mean. A lion's roar is so powerful, you can feel its vibration into your core. Lions aren't called the king of the jungle for nothing. Some, however, have made foolish decisions in pursuit of getting up close and personal with wildlife. Recently, a couple of hair-raising incidents have occurred in those before-mentioned safari parks due to people not respecting the dangerous nature of wild animals. In Beijing, China in 2015, two women were attacked by a tiger when they exited their vehicle while it was stopped inside the tiger habitat area of the park. The entire incident was caught on one of the park's surveillance cameras. I chose not to watch the whole video while doing my research. Instead, I elected only to view a few of the still shots. You can watch it if you're brave. It's easily found on YouTube. But here's an account of what unfolded. A woman in the passenger seat exits the vehicle and comes around to the driver's side door. A man is behind the wheel. He is later identified as the woman's husband. As the driver's door opens, the camera captures the bone-chilling sight of a tiger leaping at the woman from behind. Her husband tries to come to her rescue as their child looks on from the back seat. 
The woman's mother is also sitting in the back seat and jumps out of the car trying to save her daughter as a tiger begins dragging the younger woman away. A second tiger then emerges and attacks the older woman, mauling her to death on the spot. Park staff quickly drove up to the scene, and the younger woman, although gravely injured, survived. Of course, park guests are cautioned to never leave their vehicles and are even required to sign a form before entering the park, agreeing to lock their doors, keep their windows rolled up, and not exit their vehicle as they travel through the park. Why this woman felt comfortable enough to leave her car is unknown. She would later say she was trying to take over driving the car as her husband was not an experienced driver. They were driving down a straight road, so I'm not sure what she felt the urgent need was to do so. Another incident took place just in the last month at a safari park in the Netherlands. The events are also captured on video by surveillance cameras. A family of five with small children are seen driving through the park when the male driver stops in the road where cheetahs are lying nearby in the shade. He opens the driver's side door and stands outside of his vehicle to take a photo. Meanwhile, the woman in the passenger seat also exits the car and takes some items from inside the car to the trunk or the boot of the car, placing them inside. Incredibly, two small children are also seen exiting the vehicle at this point. They stand on the road near the car as well. The video, it seems, was shot by another person in a car that was traveling through the park behind the family. They point their cell phone first at the family as they exit the vehicle, and then pan it to the left, where several cheetahs can be seen lying in the grass, mere yards away. Apparently, the family then returns to their vehicle, because when the video picks up again, you can see the family has stopped the car once more, and this time, they can be seen several yards away from their car, viewing the sights from a small rise on the side of the road. Suddenly, you see at least three cheetahs rushing up to the rise towards the family. Two of the adults run to the car with one child. The third adult, a woman, probably the mother, sees the cheetahs and runs towards her toddler, who is a few feet away. The cheetahs have begun to form a circle, seeking to isolate the weakest prey from the group, the toddler. The mother picks up the child quickly, and one of the cheetahs gets into a stance, ready to pounce on her. She raises her arm to swipe at the cat, who is positioned just at her feet. She still has several yards to go to make it to the car. The cheetah follows her closely the whole way, but, miraculously, does not attack. According to animal expert Dave Salmoni, who was interviewed on CNN about this incident, the cheetahs would have seen the family when they first stopped the car and exited the vehicle. As they had now entered the cheetah's environment, the cats began to follow and hunt them, as they would now be considered prey. Once the family saw the cheetahs and began to run, the hunt was on. Cheetahs, as you may know, are the world's fastest land animal. At their top speed, they can run up to 70 miles per hour, or 110 kilometers per hour. Once they give chase, they can easily overtake their prey. The only thing that saved this woman and her child from being killed by the cheetahs that day was that while the rest of the family ran back to the car, the woman walked slowly, almost casually, with the child in her arms. Perhaps she did so instinctively, but whatever the reason, she is not acting as prey typically do, their instinct being to run. Once they do run, the animal's instinct is to chase and kill. As well, 
The woman makes a couple of big gestures with her arm, as if to shoo the animals away from her, as she walks to the car and towards safety. This is another reason Salmoni says that the woman did not immediately get attacked. Standing her ground that way might have caused the cheetah to see her as an aggressor, not as prey, or at least was confused about how to proceed to take her down. There was another phenomenon at work that day as well, I believe. I wonder if the people felt comfortable in a situation that they clearly should have seen as dangerous because they perceived the cheetahs to be non-threatening, perhaps considering them not very different from domestic house cats. Of course, this was a foolish perception if that was the case. But animal experts also say that wild animals that are kept in captivity and come into contact with humans on a daily basis become used to this unusual setup. First, they are fed on a schedule which somehow suppresses their natural hunting instinct. They also get used to interacting with humans, and that may also alter some of their instinctual behavior. But humans should always be cautious when interacting with wild animals, as they cannot be domesticated and will often revert to their innate behaviors, which can create dangerous situations for humans, especially when they are provoked. Which leads us to our first story. The San Francisco Zoo is a 100-acre property located in the southwest corner of the city, adjacent to the Great Highway and the Pacific Ocean. Opened in 1929, it now houses over 1,000 animals and over 200 species. Some of the most popular exhibits are the Gorilla Preserve, Grizzly Gulch, the Red Panda Treehouse, and of course, Cat Kingdom, which houses the big cats, lions, tigers, and leopards. The zoo was originally named the Fleischhacker Zoo, after its founder, Herbert Fleischhacker. He proposed that the name be changed to the San Francisco Zoo in 1941, to honor the city he loved. The first exhibits were populated with animals transferred from nearby Golden Gate Park. In 1968, a 59-year-old man named Amos Watson was visiting the San Francisco Zoo. He was a resident of Malpitas, a suburb of the city of San Jose, California. He would have traveled approximately 45 minutes north to reach the zoo on that spring day in April. Watson had a bit of a checkered past. He'd been incarcerated several times, mostly on account of being drunk in public. His record included no less than 177 public drunk arrests. A newspaper article during that time described him as a, quote, confirmed wino. Unquote. Not a politically correct term today, but certainly a colorful description. Saying that he was well known to law enforcement officers, courts, and judges in his hometown of Milpitas is somewhat of an understatement. His social security documents list his address as 701 South Abel Street, the address of the Elmwood Correctional Facility. Watson was observing the lions in their enclosure at the San Francisco Zoo on April 28, 1968. Well, he was doing a bit more than observing. Watson was waving a half-empty bottle of wine he'd brought into the zoo with him and calling out to the lions, Come here! Come here! He had climbed over the low fence on the outside wall of the lion's grotto and began teetering over the higher wall that encircled the 15-foot deep dry moat. The lions mostly ignored Watson as he waved his bottle and yelled at them. Then, as you may have already suspected, 
the drunk man fell into the moat. As he lay in the moat injured, he continued to wave the bottle and yell at the lion, who was now positioned in the grotto above him. Probably not one of Amos's best ideas. Witnesses said that the five-year-old African lion named Tommy at first just watched the man. Then, as he once again swung the bottle towards the lion, Tommy descended into the pit. He lunged at Watson and began closing his teeth around the man's upper body. A group of children who were visiting the lion's grotto began to scream as the lion mauled Watson. A zookeeper, Don Farrington, who had been close by feeding Tommy's mate Virginia, came running with his rifle. As Tommy continued to attack Watson, Farrington raised the rifle and fired, killing the lion with one bullet between the eyes. Watson was rushed to San Francisco General Hospital. He'd suffered two fractured legs, most likely from the fall, and had been bitten and clawed by the lion. He had deep gashes under his rib cage and lacerations on his face and neck. He survived. He was very, very drunk, one of the ambulance attendants, Richard Guardino said. That's probably the reason he survived, he explained to newspaper reporters. Amos Watson himself was quoted as saying from his hospital bed, You know, when a man does something like jump into a lion's cage, it's time to quit drinking. Whether or not Watson stayed on the wagon is unknown. At 5.04 p.m. on Christmas Day, 2007, a 911 call came in from a security guard working at the San Francisco Zoo. He requested that an ambulance be dispatched to the zoo. At 5.11 p.m., a San Francisco police officer radioed into dispatch that he was responding to a call from San Francisco Zoo staff. The caller said that two males were reporting a tiger loose in the zoo. Officers were to respond to a Code 800, or the police code for a mentally disturbed individual. The zoo staff thought the men who claimed to have seen an escaped tiger in the zoo may have been under the influence of drugs or mentally ill. However, they also reported that one of the men appeared to be bleeding from the back of the head. At 5.16 p.m., another call was made to 911. This time, a man told the operator that his friend and his brother had been attacked by an escaped tiger. He said he was calling from inside the zoo, outside of the locked zoo cafe. The dispatcher told the man that officers and an ambulance had already been requested and were responding. The man sounded panicked and somewhat unintelligible at times. The dispatcher continued to try and calm the man down and assure him that help was on the way. At one point during the call, he yells, How long does it take? She explains to him that the ambulance had arrived, but could not enter until it was deemed safe by police officers. I'm just going to stay on the line with you until the paramedics are with you, all right? Can you check up on them or see where they're at? They're on scene right now, but they have to stage until they're given permission to go inside. I understand that, but at the same time, we have to make sure the paramedics don't get chewed out, because if the paramedics get hurt, then nobody's going to help you. Okay, I understand that. All right? Okay, the ambulance is staging. I need you to understand that it's the ambulance people calm down. I am going to stay on the line with you. 
If the paramedics get hurt, they cannot help your brother. So you need to calm down. Tell and just, you are going to be the best help for your brother right now. So Can you, what's going on here? It's been, okay. I've been on you on the call with you for eight minutes. I called 10 minutes before. Okay. 20 minutes. Okay, I'm trying to explain to you that we have to make sure that we can get inside safely, all right? How long does it take? I do not know that because I'm not out there right now, but we have specialists. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, We have 16 different police units plus about six different paramedic and fire department personnel out there trying to... We just have to make sure that the tiger doesn't hurt any of the emergency units. Otherwise, there's going to be nobody to help you, all right? So just stay calm. I'm going to stay on the phone with you. At the same time, officers were contending with a lockdown situation at the zoo. Zoo personnel, still unsure of what had happened, nevertheless began safety precautions after hearing reports of an escaped animal. The two dozen or so visitors to the zoo that day were evacuated from the property and the zoo was locked down with no one allowed to enter. Approximately 10 minutes after the initial 911 call was made, officers entered the zoo property. They came upon a terrible sight. A young man was lying on the ground near the tiger grotto, battered and bleeding. A zoo staff member was with the man's body, waiting for help to arrive. But the young man, 17-year-old Carlos Souza, could no longer be helped. He was dead. Other officers continued on further into the zoo, following a blood trail which led away from the young man's body. They were accompanied by a zoo staff member armed with a rifle who led them towards the area where the cafe was located. The young man was still on the line with the 911 dispatcher at 5.27 p.m. when the call dropped. The tiger had found the man and began attacking him. The police and the trained zoo shooter arrived, and found the tiger sitting near the injured man, but couldn't take a clear shot, lest they end up harming or killing the injured victim. They called to the tiger to distract it, and when she turned towards the officers and began advancing, they began to shoot. A volley of bullets hit the tiger, and she fell, dead. At the end of all the chaos at the zoo that day, it was discovered that three men had been attacked by the tiger. Carlos Souza, age 17, had been killed. His injuries included blunt force injuries of the head and neck, punctures and scratches to his head, neck, and chest, skull and spinal fractures, and a slash to his jugular vein. The two other young men, later identified as brothers, 19-year-old Amrit Paul Dollywall, who also went by Paul, and Colbert Dollywall, age 23, were admitted to the San Francisco General Hospital. They had both received deep bite and claw wounds to their heads, necks, arms, and hands. They were kept in the hospital for a few days, but their injuries were not life-threatening. Now San Francisco police and zoo officials were charged with investigating just what happened that day. How was it possible for one of their tigers, identified as Tatiana, a four-year-old, 250-pound female Siberian tiger, to have escaped her enclosure and attacked three zoo visitors, killing one? Deaths caused by zoo animals had occurred before this incident, but record searches show that the victims have either been zoo handlers who were working with the animals at the time, or, in even rarer instances, visitors to the zoo that have breached the animal enclosure, either climbing in past safety features meant to keep them out, or falling into an animal pit. 
an animal deliberately leaving its enclosure to follow and attack people was unprecedented. San Francisco Police Inspector Valerie Matthews was charged with conducting the investigation into the death of Sousa and the attack on the Dollywall brothers. Her first order of business was to interview the brothers at the hospital. But according to police sources, the investigation was at first stymied by the brothers themselves, who initially may have given false names. Investigators reported that they refused to answer questions about themselves, the events that transpired before the attacks, and declined to even say if they knew the identity of the dead boy. But by late that evening, Inspector Matthews arrived to interview the brothers from the hospital. At that time, Coolbear Dollywall began to answer questions. He said that he and his brother Paul, along with their friend Carlos Souza, decided to visit the zoo that Christmas day. They were just looking at the tigers, he said, when all of a sudden, one slid down from the habitat into the moat. He didn't see it again until it was outside of the enclosure. The trio began to run, and Paul was pounced on by the tiger. Colbert and Carlos began yelling at the tiger, trying to get it to stop biting Paul. The tiger turned and ran after them. Paul, having received deep gashes on his head and neck, got up and began running away, leaving a blood trail behind him. Then the tiger turned his attention to Carlos. He tried to run, but didn't get far before he was fatally mauled. Paul and Colbert ran. Investigators were able to determine from the scene of the attack that Carlos had been overcome quickly. He'd probably died soon after the tiger slashed his jugular vein, bleeding out rapidly. There was a blood trail where the tiger had dragged Carlos's body a few feet. The tiger may have sat with the body for a bit, as is a predator's instinct, after its prey succumbs. But for some reason, Tatiana continued on, most likely following the scent of blood, as the other two men ran for safety. Paul Dollywall was bleeding profusely, and both men tried to get inside the zoo cafe to look for help. The cafe had just closed and the door was locked. Paul and Colbert pounded on the door, saying they'd been attacked by a tiger. The staff inside the cafe had no reports of escaped animals and thought the men were either mentally unstable or playing a prank. They called zoo security, but did not open the door. At some point, one of the managers spoke to Colbert, who was requesting help for his bleeding brother. The man still didn't seem to take the frantic man seriously. Then Colbert used his cell phone to make the 911 call. After several minutes on the phone with the dispatcher, the tiger suddenly reappeared and set upon Colbert. At about the same time, the police arrived. At that point, the injured Colbert was on the ground and the tiger was sitting next to his prone body. When the tiger heard officers approaching, she began attacking Colbert once more. An officer then radioed, At the cafe, we have the tiger! We have the tiger attacking the victim! Then an emergency code is used. Code 33, we have the tiger! Blue on blue! Blue on blue! A warning that multiple officers were firing their weapons and to watch out for crossfire. Moments later, a code 4 is called, an all-clear signal. Then an officer tells dispatch, we have the cat. We shot the cat. The victim is being attended to. But Inspector Matthews and zoo officials were still perplexed as to how and why Tatiana had escaped her enclosure and went on the attack. The Dollywall brothers denied that they or Sousa had provoked the animal in any way. 
but police and zoo officials still weren't convinced. At a press conference soon after the attacks, the San Francisco Zoo Executive Director, Manuel Molinero, said, something prompted our tiger to leap out of the exhibit. Some of the evidence gathered during the investigation included sticks and at least one pine cone found inside the tiger enclosure that were foreign to the exhibit. Officials suspected that this was evidence that someone had thrown items into the tiger's enclosure, provoking Tatiana. A shoe print was also found on the railing of the fence surrounding the enclosure. Later, it was said to match Paul Dollywall's shoes. A search of Colbert Dollywall's 2002 BMW, which was parked at the zoo, turned up an empty vodka bottle and a small amount of marijuana. Toxicology tests were taken of all three men's blood. 19-year-old Paul Dollywall was found to have a 0.16 blood alcohol level, or twice the legal limit for operating a vehicle. 17-year-old Carlos Souza and 23-year-old Colbert Dollywall also tested positive for alcohol, but under the 0.08 legal limit. All three also tested positive for marijuana. While this may seem irrelevant, authorities were trying to figure out why the tiger had reacted the way it had, seeming to have zeroed in on the three men. After Sousa was killed, Tatiana then continued to follow the two Dollywall brothers, bypassing other animals that would be natural prey for her and that she would have had easy access to, like the warthog exhibit. Then more information came to light. First, a visitor to the zoo that Christmas day called the San Francisco Police Department after seeing Carlos Souza's photo and the account of the tiger attack in the newspaper. Jennifer Miller recognized Souza as one of the four young men she says she saw that day at the zoo. She was visiting on Christmas Day with her husband and two children, as was their family custom. While at the Big Cat Grotto, she and her kids were standing near four young men who were observing the tigers. The boys, especially the older one, was roaring at them. He was taunting them, Miller told the San Francisco Chronicle. They were trying to get the lion's attention. The lion was bristling, so I just said, come on, let's get out of here, because my kids were disturbed by it. However, Carlos Souza was not one of the boys who was taunting the lion, Miller said. She recalled that the younger boy looked at her almost apologetically. She also reported seeing three other men, not two, with Souza. Who this fourth man was is not clear. She told authorities that she witnessed the boys taunting the tiger a little after 4 p.m. Carlos Souza Jr. was laid to rest the following month at Oak Hill Memorial Park in his hometown of San Jose, California. Carlos had been a junior at Independence High School. Over 300 people, including family members and classmates, came out on the cold, rainy day to pay their last respects to the young man. Carlos was described as a gentle giant, standing six foot one inches tall. He was funny, always quick with a joke, his friends said. He enjoyed music and wrote rap lyrics and aspired to be a DJ. One of his favorite teams was the Oakland Raiders, and his father, Carlos Sr., recalled many happy memories of the two of them attending games and tailgating together. His mother, Marilza, was waiting for Carlos to return home on Christmas Day. She had prepared a meal, and the family had plans to exchange gifts. She didn't have a lot to spend on gifts, but Marilza had wrapped $40 inside some tube socks for her son, and had made the black beans and rice he loved. 
When he didn't return by 10 p.m. that night, his family began to call around. No one had seen Carlos. Carlos Sousa's parents saw reports on the news about the terrible tiger attack at the zoo, but it wasn't until the next day that they discovered the victim was their son. At first, they couldn't believe it. It wasn't until his father drove almost an hour north to San Francisco to identify the body did the reality sink in. His boy, his 17-year-old son, was dead, mauled to death by a 250-pound tiger. It was unbelievable. Marilza needed answers. She had to know what happened. How could this have happened to her child? The investigation was still continuing, and answers were still elusive. She decided that she needed to hear from Carlos's friend, Paul Dollywall, the last person she knew who'd seen him alive. She finally reached him by phone, just before the day of his funeral service. Paul tearfully told her his version of events. They hadn't taunted the tiger, he insisted. They were just walking and talking and having a good time when the tiger sprang up out of nowhere. The tiger had gotten to him first, and then Carlos and his brother had yelled and waved their arms at it to try and scare or distract it so he could get away. But then the tiger had turned on Carlos. He had no time to run. He just grabbed him, Paul told Marilza Souza. The mouth of the tiger just opened and got his neck and killed him right there. Mrs. Souza told him she didn't want to hear any more. But Carlos's father would later tell police that Paul Dollywall admitted to being drunk and yelling and waving at the animal while standing on the railing of the lion enclosure. He told them that Carlos had saved his life, Souza would later say. He didn't run, Mr. Souza told police and reporters about his son. He tried to help his friend, and it was him who ended up getting it the worst. But whether or not the animal had been taunted was not the main issue. Although foolish, taunting a zoo animal is no more than a misdemeanor according to the laws of the city of San Francisco. A bigger question remained. How did the tiger get out of its enclosure? Surely precautions had to be in place to keep such dangerous animals from escaping. Zoo officials at first gave different estimates of the height of the moat wall encircling the big cat grotto. After an official inspection, the wall was determined to be 12 and a half feet tall, four feet shorter than the nationally recommended height for that type of zoo enclosure. A comprehensive report, later submitted by the United States Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, which oversees the nation's zoos, stated, It appears the tiger was able to jump from the bottom of the dry moat to the top of the wall, and gain enough purchase over the top to pull herself out over the moat wall. The report written by tiger expert Lori Gage further stated, With my knowledge of tiger behavior, I cannot imagine a tiger trying to jump out of its enclosure unless it was provoked. This statement was later stricken from the final version of the report, as it was deemed, quote, irrelevant from an Animal Welfare Act enforcement standpoint, end quote. A necropsy of Tatiana, the animal version of an autopsy, determined that her claws had not been frayed. This suggested that she had not had to try more than once to leap to the top of the concrete wall before she was able to escape. Her stomach contents only revealed remains of digested animal meat. No human flesh was discovered, meaning she had not fed on her human victims. One final point made in the report is interesting. Gage writes, after a kill, I find it interesting the tiger would leave a kill to go after something else unless there was a compelling reason. 
It followed the blood trail of the two brothers to the terrace cafe, outside the dining area. The zoo was found negligent for not constructing the wall at the recommended height, thus securing the safety of zoo visitors. In more than 65 years of its existence, no other tiger had ever escaped from that enclosure. Still, the zoo conceded that they had been negligent. They were fined $1,875 by the USDA and made a series of corrections to the exhibit at the cost of $1.7 million. An extension was made to the concrete barrier wall to bring it up to 16 feet 4 inches. In addition, a new plexiglass wall was placed atop it, bringing the total height to 19 feet, 3 feet taller than the minimum requirement. The zoo also installed electrified hot wires to line the perimeter of the enclosure at the moat line. As well, protect the animal signs were posted throughout the zoo. They read, Help make the zoo a safe environment. The magnificent animals in the zoo are wild and possess all their natural instincts. You are a guest in their home. Please remember, they are sensitive and have feelings. Please don't tap on glass, throw anything into exhibits, make excessive noise, tease or call out to them. The Dollywall brothers filed a lawsuit against the city and the zoo, blaming them for the injuries they received from the tiger mauling. They also sought damages for what they believe constituted defamation of character after the attack. Their attorney, Mark Garagos, filed a suit that claimed zoo officials and the SFPD defamed the brothers by publicly claiming that they had been drunk and high on the day of the attack, and by further claiming, falsely, Garagos would contend, that the brothers had provoked the tiger by throwing items into its enclosure. Garagos would paint the city's allegations a, quote, smear job on the dolly walls. In May 2009, the zoo's insurance company settled with the dolly walls out of court for $900,000. A year after their son's death, Carlos Sr. and Marilza filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the city and the zoo. It was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. The Dollywall brothers would have several run-ins with the law over the years. Both Paul and Colbert had arrest records prior to the December 2007 tiger attack. In April of that year, Paul had been arrested after fleeing from a traffic stop in San Jose. He led police on a chase that reached up to 140 miles per hour. In September, Colbert was arrested for public intoxication and resisting arrest. Three months after the tiger attack, Paul Dollywall was arrested attempting to steal two video game controllers from a San Leandro Target store. He was arrested, posted $1,500 bail, and was released. The arrest occurred the same day the Dollywalls filed their lawsuit against the city. In July of 2009, two months after receiving the $900,000 settlement, Colbert Dollywall was in a car driven by his other brother, Tarlock, when they were pulled over near San Jose State University the car was going the wrong way down a one-way street. Tarlock was arrested for suspicion of driving under the influence. Colbert was found to have three grams of cocaine in his possession and was also arrested. He was also charged again with resisting arrest. The following month, Colbert and Paul were pulled over in San Mateo, California, on a traffic stop. The officer smelled marijuana in the car and noticed an open container of vodka inside. Colbert failed a field sobriety test and was later determined to have a 0.10 alcohol level. 
Paul was asked for identification and falsely identified himself as Tarlock, his 26-year-old brother. Paul was on parole for the theft charge and was trying to avoid arrest. He later pled no contest to providing false identification to an officer and was sentenced to 10 days in jail. Colbert was charged with misdemeanor drunken driving and was released. The USDA's report stating their determination that the tiger had been taunted before she escaped her enclosure was not released until 2011, two years after the lawsuits were settled. In 2012, Paul Dollywall died at the age of 24. The cause of his death has been kept private by his family. Colbert's whereabouts are unknown. Marilza Souza says that Christmas is no longer a happy holiday for the family, like it was before they lost Carlos. A mass is said in her son's honor every Christmas day, since his death. Carlos Sr. says he takes some solace in the fact that changes were made at the zoo so that, quote, people will be safe now, unquote. He misses his son every day. He would now be 28 years old as of this writing. Carlos Sr. says he can only imagine what kind of man his boy would have become. Four years after Tatiana was killed, the San Francisco Zoo adopted another Siberian tiger. Martha, adopted from a Nebraska zoo, was 11 years old when San Francisco became her home. She quickly became one of the most popular animals in the zoo. A bronze statue of a tiger that had long been a fixture at the front entrance of the San Francisco Zoo became a makeshift memorial to Tatiana when the zoo reopened after the attack. Visitors mourned the slain tiger by placing flowers, cards, and photos of Tatiana at the base of the statue. Tiger trainer Chris Austria explains that tigers can never be tamed. Although Tatiana was born in captivity and never lived in the wild, she instinctively reacted to what was considered a threat to her environment, Austria explains. She summed up the tragedy by saying, It's very sad for Carlos Souza and his family, very sad for Tatiana, and I hope this is a situation that we can learn from and move forward. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.